By the way he carried himself, you really thought that Bon Scott was immortal. He always said he was going to be a millionaire. I just wish he'd been alive to see it and enjoy it. Almost every Christmas, Ron came home to visit. The last time we saw him was at Christmas 79, two months before he died. Ron told me he was working on the Back in Black album and that that was going to be it, that he was going to be a millionaire. He'd be over the moon if he saw what was going on with ACDC today. The words of Issa Scott, 87, the mother of legendary free-spirited wild man of rock Bon Scott, arguably the greatest frontman and rock and roller of all time. The cheeky Scottish-born Australian street poet who loved and lived life to the max, yet sadly died alone in a tin pot Renault 5 on a freezing cold February night in East London. Bon Scott was just 33, and after a late night recording session, followed by an evening of heavy drinking, possibly combined with ingestion of heroin, left him in a familiar state, passed out. This time, unfortunately, death was close by. He was moments away from unconsciously choking on his own vomit and heading straight towards the afterlife. He died on February the 19th, 1980, just five months before his now iconic band, ACDC, released their greatest album, Back in Black. An LP that is currently the second best-selling album in music history and cemented the band in the pantheon of rock immortals, as well as making them all extremely wealthy, except for Bon. The fame, wealth and success Bon Scott had been seeking for his lyrical poetry and 13 hard years on the road had slipped through his fingers. But like many gifted rock stars that somehow transcend everything, even themselves, Bon Scott was soulfully aware the clock was ticking. He was convinced he would not make it past the age of 40. He beat his own psychic prediction by seven years and just a few months after confessing his fears to his friend, Vince Lovegrove, that he had to make it soon or he would quit the music business. Join us on the highway to hell as we explore the short but explosive life of one of rock's legendary singers and blue-collar poet, Bon Scott. We dig in to uncover the shocking details of his mysterious death, examine the mystical facts, and reveal how it was all written in the cosmos for the ACDC lead singer. This is Death by Misadventure. Bon Scott was born Ronald Belford Scott on the 9th of July 1946 in Forfar, Scotland, the son of Charles Belford Scott and Isabel Cunningham Mitchell. Ron had a sister, Valerie, and two brothers, Derek and Graham. There was a fifth child, Sandy, but he died soon after birth. The Scott family moved from their Kirimuir home to Sunshine, a suburb of Melbourne, Australia, in 1952. Ron attended the local primary school. It was here that his classmates gave him the name Bon, as a nod to Bonnie Scotland, as there was already another boy called Ron among their number. In 1956, the family moved to Fremantle. Scott joined the associated Fremantle Scots Pipe Band, where he learned to play the drums. He attended North Fremantle Primary School and later John Curtin College of the Arts until he dropped out of school at the age of 15. 
An early indicator of Bond's sense of non-conformity and free spirit occurred when he found himself in trouble with the law in 1962. At a dance, Bon, now 16, had sex with an underage girl. A couple of other guys at the dance then tried to force themselves onto the girl, and Bon took on both of them. According to close friend Mary Renshaw in her memoir Live Wire, the police broke up the fight, but Bon didn't stick around. He gave the cops a false name and address and took off in a mate's car. He was later apprehended and ended up in Fremantle Children's Court. He pleaded guilty to charges of unlawful carnal knowledge, giving a false name and address to police, and stealing 12 gallons of petrol. He was sent to a boy's home. Mary was quoted as saying she believed Bon was highly ashamed of what he'd done, and throughout his life was driven to succeed, partly to say sorry to his mum and dad. That may have influenced him to enlist in the Australian army, but that didn't go well. His application was rejected as he was deemed socially maladjusted. Bond spent the next few years moving from job to job, postman, bartender, truck packer, all the while having aspirations to get into the music business. A great fan of rock and rollers, Little Richard and Jerry Lewis, as well as soul singers such as Sam Moore, Bond took the plunge in 1964 and formed his own band, The Spectres, with co-drummer and co-vocalist John Collins. Collins and Scott would each play half a set as drummer and the other half as lead vocalist, playing covers of popular beat, pop and rock and roll music of the time. In late 1966, Scott left the Spectres and joined with members of rival band The Winstons to form a new group, The Valentines, with Scott sharing vocal duties with Winston's Vince Lovegrove. The Valentines recorded several songs written by George Young, guitarists with beat band The Easy Beats. The Easy Beats had enjoyed considerable success with the classic Friday on My Mind, which became an international hit in 66. George Young was the older brother of Malcolm and Angus Young, who later formed ACDC. One of Scott's heroes was Steve Wright, the Easy Beat singer who was quite a live wire on stage. Bond modelled himself on Stevie, says Michael Browning, ACDC's manager in 1974, and when the Easy Beats played Perth in 1966, Bond met George Young and forged a friendship. After all, the Youngs were Scottish emigres like Bond. The Valentine's version of Arthur Alexander's Every Day I Have to Cry made the local record chart at number 5, but in 1970, after getting a place on the national top 30 with their single Juliet, the Valentines disbanded following a drug scandal in which they became the first Australian band arrested for possession of marijuana. Each member was fined $150 and were made subject of a good behaviour bond. Bond's early musical journey next saw him move to Adelaide in 1970 to join progressive rockers Fraternity. Bon Scott played recorder on the Blackfeather track Seasons of Change before recording Fraternity's debut album Livestock. By the album's release in early 1971, Fraternity relocated to Adelaide and lived on a farm. Seasons of Change became a number one hit in Adelaide and reached number 51 on the Go Set National Top 60. Fraternity were inspired by The Band and Vanilla Fudge. They moved to the Adelaide Hills soon after Bond joined. Their lifestyle was a bit commune-like but they drank too much to really qualify as hippies. The band nicknamed him Road Test Ronnie, as whenever a new drug came out, he was ready to try it. Remarkably, Bon Scott's wild lifestyle never impeded his performance. He drank heaps until he could barely stand, but he always remained the same fun and loving person.
In May 1972, shortly after Bond married Irene Thornton, Fraternity took their wives, roadies and dog to London on a tour of the UK, where they opened for status quo. Life on the road was tough for the couple. There were 17 people living in one house. Two broke to buy drinks. Bond would make friends with people in London, who happily plied him with alcohol. Fraternity then changed their name to Fang, and found themselves supporting Geordie, a glam rock band featuring Brian Johnson on vocals, who would eerily later go on to take Bond's place as lead singer of ACDC. A year later, Fang broke up, and for the first time in a decade, Bon Scott was without a band. But Destiny stepped in, and that hiatus didn't last long. After his return to Australia, Scott took a day job at the Wallaroo Fertilising Plant and began singing with the Mount Lofty Rangers, a musicians' collective set up by Peter Head. Head Band and Fraternity had been under the same management team and had both disbanded around the same time. Remembering Bon, Vince Lovegrove says Bon would go to Peter's home after a day of literally shoveling shit and show him musical ideas he had during his day's work. Scott even found himself briefly employed by his old friend, Vince Lovegrove, now a rock promoter. In a premonition of what his future would bring, Bon Scott's job was to put up ACDC posters. In May 1974, Bon Scott had his first brush with death and almost died. Bon loved motorbikes, but, somewhat befitting his nature, had a lax approach to road safety. He would ride naked, drunk, up and down stairs or into sand dunes, just to make people laugh. Around 11pm on May 3rd, 1974, at the Line Hotel in North Adelaide, during a rehearsal with the Mount Lofty Rangers, says Lovegrove, a very drunk, distressed and belligerent Bon Scott had a raging argument with a member of the band and stormed out of the venue, threw a bottle of Jack Daniels onto the ground and screamed off on his Suzuki 550 motorbike. Three hours later, Vince received a phone call from Bon's wife, Irene, at Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Bon was in a coma, near death, after a disastrous collision with a motor car. Lovegrove was quoted as saying, I drove to the hospital and there was Bon as I'd never seen him. Limp, smashed to smithereens, his jaw wide, most of his teeth knocked out, a broken collarbone, several cracked and broken ribs, deep cuts across his throat. He was in a coma for three days. He remained in hospital for 18 days. This happened before Bon was famous, and Irene tells me that before he went into the coma that night, the nurse sarcastically said to her, he says he's a singer. When Bon was released from hospital, he stayed alternatively between staying at home with his wife Irene and with his good friend Vince Lovegrove, who was running a booking management agency. Vince gave Scott odd jobs during his recovery, painting the office and continued to put up more ACDC posters. While Scott was recovering from his various injuries, changes were afoot with ACDC. Formed by George Young's younger brothers, Malcolm and Angus, the band had played their first gig in December 1973 with singer Dave Evans. They cut their debut single with Evans on vocals, Can I Sit Next to You Girl, but the Youngs wanted to replace him. They were playing Largs Pier out on a jetty, recalls ACDC drummer Pete Clack. Bon was in the crowd. We knew he was a fantastic singer, says Clack. 
So Malcolm Young, who was the brain, said, I'm going to put it on Bon Scott. Maybe he'll be interested. There was an audition and he invited Bon to join. Bon said, piss off, I've got my wife and I'm about to start a job. When we got back to Melbourne, Bon called up and said, okay Malcolm, I'm in. It turned out his job was to paint this big rusty ship in the dock at Adelaide. He was on his way in the cold, looked at the ship and said, fuck this, I'm not doing this for a living. Turned around, phoned Malcolm and packed a suitcase. Vince Lovegrove remembers. There was a young, dinky little glam band from Sydney that we both loved called ACDC. Before another ACDC visit, George Young phoned me and said the band was looking for a new singer. I immediately told him that the best guy for the job was Bon. George responded by saying Bon's accident would not allow him to perform and that maybe he was too old. Nevertheless, I had a meeting with Malcolm and Angus and suggested Bon as their new singer. They asked me to bring him out to the Puraka Hotel that night and to come backstage after the show. When he watched the band, Bon was impressed and he immediately wanted to join them, but thought they may be a bit too inexperienced and too young. After the show, backstage, Bon expressed his doubts about them being able to rock. The two young brothers told Bon he was too old to rock. The upshot was they had a jam session that night in the home of fraternity bassist Bruce Howe. And at the end of the session, at dawn, it was obvious that ACDC had found a new singer and Bon had found a new band. The band's new manager, Michael Browning, had his doubts at first. I wasn't sure Bon was right. He was older and had been in the teeny bot Valentines then the hippie fraternity. But it worked. Bon took the role on like a character actor. He was the missing link. He made them real. Drummer Clack was impressed. Bon was charismatic and a tremendous singer. He was an MC, a proper showman, and the music was ideal for that. He'd have Angus up on his shoulders playing these screaming solos, or he'd be up on the PA stack. Whatever it took to give people a good time. Malcolm Young claimed Bon was the biggest single influence on the band. He had a real character, with his own style and ideas for lyrics, Malcolm said. Angus Young, too, is full of admiration. I don't think there'd have been an ACDC if it hadn't been for Bon. He moulded the character of ACDC. Bon Scott once said, They told me to sound like myself, and after years of having to rein himself in, he was finally allowed to let rip and freely express himself. What happened next is the stuff of rock legend. The band shared a house in a seedy area of Melbourne that quickly became a mecca for party animals. Shenanigans, sex and excess found their way into Bon Scott's lyrics, such as Whole Lot of Rosie, written in honour of a Tasmanian groupie. Bon was a street poet. He described it as toilet wall poetry. Malcolm and Angus had hired a singer, but got a lyricist as well. During the next four years, ACDC worked non-stop, sometimes playing three gigs in one day. The group played everywhere and anywhere in Australia, as well as touring Europe and the US, gaining cult status as one of the best new hard rock bands on the planet. With the Young Brothers as lead and rhythm guitarists and older brother George Young as a temporary bassist, ACDC released High Voltage, their first LP, in February 1975. Their second album, TNT, was released the same year, in December. ACDC's popularity was beginning to gather speed. A third studio album, 
Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, was also released in 76, but only in Australia. The international version of the album was released in November in the UK and in March 1981 in the US, with a different track listing. In the following years, ACDC gained further success with their albums Let There Be Rock and Powerage. The 1978 release of Powerage marked the debut of bassist Cliff Williams, who had replaced Mark Evans, and with its harder riffs, followed the blueprint set by Let There Be Rock. The band's sixth album, Highway to Hell, was produced by Robert Mutt Lang and was released in 1979. It became ACDC's first LP to break the US Top 100, and it propelled ACDC into the top ranks of hard rock acts. The band seemed on the verge of a commercial breakthrough. Tony Platt was hired to mix Highway to Hell, with the recording taking place at Roundhouse Studios in London. They wanted a solid English rock sound, explains Platt. I'd worked with Led Zepp, The Who and Free, so I was used to highly proficient bands that lived hard, but also worked very hard. When he sang, you believed him. The Youngs ran the band, but Bond could plough his own furrow. There were stories about him disappearing at the end of one gig and reappearing just in time for the sound check at the next. Malcolm once told me, the thing with Bon is, it doesn't matter what he does, he always turns up. You got the impression he was resilient. Highway to Hell was ACDC's biggest album so far. It reached the top 10 in the UK and number 17 in the US. The band planned to head to the Bahamas to record the follow-up. Bon Scott's moment had finally arrived. Then suddenly, Bon was dead. ACDC briefly considered disbanding, but the group quickly recruited vocalist Brian Johnson of the British glam rock band Geordie. ACDC's subsequent album, Back in Black, was released only five months later and was, the band said, a tribute to Bon Scott. It went on to become the third best-selling album in history, behind Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and Michael Jackson's Thriller. Bon Scott never saw or enjoyed the success that ACDC went on to achieve, unlike Hendrix, Morrison and Bonham, who all died too young, but lived long enough to enjoy some fame and fortune. Longtime friend Lovegrove echoes that. The thing I loved most about Bon Scott, Lovegrove said after Bon's death, was his almost unique self-honesty. What you saw was what you got. He was a real person, and as honest as the day is long. To my mind, he was the street poet of my generation, and of the generations that followed. The only thing that can be said with any certainty about the death of Bon Scott is that it was incredibly sad, and all the more tragic given he was so close to achieving his ambition, and that he was found dead in a car on a freezing night in London after a night of heavy drinking. Other than that, Bon Scott's death is shrouded in mystery. We can't say too much about that for obvious reasons, as there has been many theories posted over the years, and a lot of it is conjecture. However, we do like a good rock and roll mystery here, so for the record, here's what we've discovered. 
The official version, if indeed it is that, is that Bon Scott's body was discovered in a car outside a flat in East London at around 7.45 p.m. by a friend known as Alistair Kinnear, who had left him there the previous morning after a night of heavy drinking, which left Bon passed out and immovable. For many years, it was thought that Kinnear may actually have been someone else entirely, and that according to one author, Kinnear was in fact another acquaintance of Scott's, going by another name, possibly a known dealer of heroin. At the time, Kinnear gave a statement that he found Bond dead at 7.45 in the evening of February 19th. Yet, according to a member of heavy metal outfit UFO, who Bond was with that night for a time, News reached him about Bond's death at around 11 a.m. on the 19th. So, already there's a discrepancy. Bond was said to have been rushed to King's College Hospital in Camberwell, where he's pronounced dead on arrival, following Kinnear's discovery of his body in the car. The official coroner's report states that Scott died as a result of pulmonary aspiration of vomit. The official cause was listed as acute alcohol poisoning and death by misadventure. There was no mention of drugs being involved. Yet it seems Bond spent a great deal of time with known heroin dealers and users in the hours prior to his death. Two members of UFO, bassist Pete Way and guitarist Paul Chapman, have gone on record to imply that Bond may have dabbled with heroin, with Chapman claiming Bond had gone looking to procure heroin in a bid to keep the party going on the night he died. According to Chapman, Bond had gone to his house with Joe King, another dealer who had been living with Bond's ex-girlfriend, Margaret Silversmith, also a known heroin user and dealer. Bond left Chapman and King to get the drugs, but never returned. In the end, somehow Bond ended up with Kinnear in East London, and 24 hours later, he took the backstage exit to the afterlife. Malcolm Young, who passed away in October 2017, has been quoted as saying to Mojo Magazine in 2006, We weren't there, but we know exactly what went on there. We still haven't told what we know because it's more of a personal thing for Bon. Bon was really low that night, and Bon was a big drinker, so that night he went a little bit further. But he didn't drink himself to death, that was for sure. He had too much to live for. Bond had been in London at this time working on songs for the next ACDC studio album, the follow-up to Highway to Hell. This album was to be called Back in Black, and Bond was working on two songs with the Young Brothers, Have a Drink on Me and Let Me Put My Love Into You. He was living in a flat in Ashley Court, Victoria, London, with his new Japanese girlfriend, Anna Baba. Also still in the frame was Bon Scott's former girlfriend, Silver Smith, an Australian who was a familiar figure in London's then-thriving rock and roll scene. According to various reports, Bon invited Silver Smith to go with him to Dingwalls, a music venue in Camden Town. She declined but said her friend Alistair Kinnear would like to go with Bon instead. Bon and Kinnear ended up at the Music Machine, a venue just down the road from Dingwalls at the bottom end of Candom High Street, near Mornington Crescent Tube Station. Kinnear spoke to London's Evening Standard two days after Bon's death and gave his version of the events that night. 
I met up with Bond to go to the music machine, but he was pretty drunk when I picked him up. When we got there, he was drinking four whiskeys straight in a glass at a time. Kinnear then claimed he drove Bond back to his flat in Victoria, but couldn't get Scott out of the car as he had passed out and apparently could not be stirred. So, Kinnear made a diversion to East London, where he lived in a flat at number 67 Overhill Road. Kinnear parked his car outside his home, but Bond remained unconscious. He simply couldn't be shifted. I just could not move him, Kinnear told the standard, so I covered him with a blanket and I left him a note to tell him how to get up to my flat in case he woke up. Kinnear says he went to bed in the early hours of Tuesday morning, February 19th, and that he didn't wake until the following evening. I went to sleep and it was later in the evening, reportedly at 7.45 p.m., when I went back out to the car and I knew something was wrong immediately. Inside Kinnear's car, Bon Scott lay dead. According to biographer Clinton Walker, Bond could not find a comfortable position in the small car. His body was curled around the gear stick, his neck twisted, and his dental plate dislodged. The bile rose up in his throat and blocked his asthmatic windpipe. Kinnear, who some have said was a musician, disappeared a couple days later, and his flat in East London was ransacked by persons unknown. Kinnear was never heard of again for years. It wasn't until 2005 that Kinnear reappeared to give an interview to London's Guardian newspaper, in which he gave a very different version of the events that occurred on the night Bon Scott died. He claimed he had not gone into hiding and had in fact been working as a musician on the Costa del Sol in Spain for the past 22 years and had still been in contact with friends in London. Then, mysteriously, Kinnear was reported missing at sea in 2010, feared dead, his disappearance falling on the 30th anniversary of Bond's tragic passing. Kinnear set sail on the sloop Dinara from Marseille with two other men in July 2006, heading to southern Spain. Then they vanished. Soon after Kinnear went missing, a person claiming to be Dinara's skipper contacted authorities to say Kinnear was safe, but did not want any contact with his family. The message passed on was, please forget me. However, Kinnear's son is certain he's dead and wonders if foul play may have been involved. The situation is he's missing, not legally declared dead. We have to wait seven years for that to happen, and we're four years into that process, his son Daniel said at the time. It's a nightmare situation. That was back in 2010, so it would have been 2013 that Kinnear would have legally been declared dead. As of yet, we have no more information on this. Questions from friends and family still remain about Bon Scott's mysterious death. One of his good friends, Vince Lovegrove, points out the puzzling facts. He was quoted as saying, On February 19, 1980, Bon Scott was found dead, alone, slumped forward in a Renault car in South London. He had drunk himself to death, according to the coroner's report. A very lonely death, as it turned out. Those of us in Australia who knew Bon well 
Those of us who had known him since the 60s could not quite comprehend how, on the edge of international success, he could die alone in a car parked in a lonely London street in the middle of winter with not a friend in sight. Sadly, Bon Scott's good friend Vince Lovegrove died on March 24, 2012, age 65, in a car accident in New South Wales. A preliminary police report on March 25th indicated that Lovegrove's van left the Binnaburra Road, rolled and exploded into flames between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. the previous day. There was one deceased person in the van, and positive identification was yet to be made. On March 26, Lovegrove's family issued a statement confirming his death. Longtime friend and local singer-songwriter Gene Evans was one of the last to see Lovegrove alive. He was a beautiful man with a generous soul and a supportive, passionate music lover, she said. It was hard to comprehend him dying like that after all he had gone through. Indeed, Lovegrove, described as a music pioneer, was also an AIDS activist in a life that was touched by tragedy. He lost both his wife, Susie Sidewinder, in 1987 and son, Troy, to AIDS in 1993. Booze or smack or both? Adding fire to the mystery of Bond's demise is author Jesse Fink. His controversial book, Bond, The Last Highway, was published in October last year and makes a number of claims following interviews with Scott's friends who alleged the rocker was dabbling in heroin at the time of his death. While ACDC always denied Scott's use of Class A drugs, it is a fact that Bond Scott OD'd twice, first in 1975, then in 1976. This was confirmed by bassist Mark Evans. I never saw Bond take hard drugs but he did OD in Australia, says Evans. He didn't take hard drugs on a regular basis, but he dabbled. As we now know, Bon Scott was in the company of known heroin addicts the night he died, and basically, according to Fink's book, he had a third overdose, and this time it got him. That's the conclusion I've come to. Fink also examines the conspiracy theory that Scott was involved in lyrics for ACDC's record-breaking album, Back in Black, released just five months after his death. His replacement, Brian Johnson, is credited for writing all the lyrics on the album, which has now sold over 50 million copies. In this book, Fink speaks to Scott's ex-girlfriends who claim to have seen lyrics from You Shook Me All Night Long, in notebooks and their letters as far back as 1976. Silver Smith, one of Scott's most serious girlfriends, was in London at the time of his death. Silver said Bond Scott had called her and said he'd finished work on Back in Black and that's the reason he wanted to go out, which was the last night of his life, Fink said. She says, It's not like I'm the first person to ponder how much of Bond Scott is on that album. It's been talked about since the album was released. It's never going to go away. 
I wanted to investigate as much as possible if Bond had anything to do with the lyrics for the album. Scott also died virtually broke with only $30,000 in his bank account, despite ACDC's success prior to the release of Back in Black, which was remarkable. Had Bond Scott lived, he'd be a millionaire hundreds of times over. As with his previous book, The Youngs, The Brothers Who Built ACDC, the author Fink had had no input from the other members of ACDC. Possibly a couple of the heroin users Fink is maybe referring to are bassist Pink Way and guitarist Paul Chapman, both formerly of heavy metal band UFO in the 1970s. They were among the last to see Bon Scott alive on the night of February 18th. Speaking publicly for the first time in an interview for Classic Rock, Way and Chapman admit using heroin heavily during their time with the band. Although they both stopped short of saying they saw Bond using the drug, Way has said this. Now we as UFO were on substances, right? We were using heroin after the show. I've got to be very careful here. One of the guys that was bringing it to us was an Australian, and he came down with Bond. And you know, if you do cocaine and drink, you can get a violent reaction. But if you've never done heroin before, and we were doing heroin after the show like we always did, and you drink, the odds are that at some point you'll fall asleep, and you'll choke, and you'll die. The dealer Way is talking about could well be the mysterious Alistair Kinnear, the so-called friend who apparently left Bond passed out in his Renault 5 on that freezing cold night in East Dulwich. He discovered Bond's body many hours later and gave an interview to the London Evening Standard newspaper the next day. As Kinnear says himself in the Guardian interview, In late 1978, I met Silver Smith, with whom I moved to a flat in Kensington. She was a sometime girlfriend to Bond Scott. Bond came to stay with us for two weeks, and he and I became friends. Silver returned to Australia for a year, and I moved to Overhill Road in East Dulwich. According to many reports back in 1980, Silversmith was living with an Australian called Joe King, alias Joe Blow, who might also have the same name Joe Fury. If Kinnear was really Joe King, it would explain why no one could trace Kinnear after he disappeared from the scene. According to Jeff Barton, if the timing is accurate, then Chapman would have made his call several hours before Alistair Kinnear's discovery of Bond's body in the Renault 5 outside the flat in East Dulwich in the evening of Tuesday, February 19, 1980. So, what really happened between the time he was last seen alive by friends and the time he was found dead is still something of a mystery. It is also not known when the police were actually called that night, as East Dulwich Police Station haven't kept any records, because Bond's death was non-suspicious. The coroner's court has also refused to release the report despite repeated requests for access to it over the last 37 years from authors, media, and press on the grounds that they were not what the court would deem a properly interested person. However, when Classic Rock looked into it, 
A spokesman told them, there is still sensitivity surrounding this case. Fink, in his new book, Bond Scott, The Last Highway, states Bond met up with a woman who claims to have been with him from 1978 till the day he died. She chose to remain anonymous for the interview with Fink for personal reasons. She says, They had been together starting around the time ACDC were in Miami for a fortnight holiday before the 60-plus dates for the summer tour, promoting Powerage. She described Bon Scott as a gentle soul in spirit and very, very sensitive. The former girlfriend is not the first person who believes Bon wrote several songs on Back in Black. She said, I really think Bon wrote those lyrics to You Shook Me All Night Long, but he didn't get any credit, as always, quite possibly, he wrote them, in tandem with the Youngs, but they are his ideas. I have one last thing to say about that song. The lyric is, chartreuse eyes, not sightless eyes. The former girlfriend is referring to the line, she had the sightless eyes, telling me no lies, knocking me out with those American thighs. It's not sightless eyes, she says, it's chartreuse. A memory I have, which is so clear, is that Bon and I were sitting out in the sun behind the Newport Hotel in Miami, and he turned to me, the sun was in my face, and he suddenly exclaimed, Your eyes are chartreuse. I remember this vividly because I had no idea what color chartreuse was, and immediately took it to be something bad, like bright pink or some ghastly color. He referred to my eye color by that word many times. The most poignant memory comes from younger brother, Graham Scott, who lives in Thailand. I was a merchant seaman, and whenever I was sailing, I'd always make it my business to see Bon. Before he joined ACDC, I'd buy Gosset magazine to see where the Valentines were playing, and if I happened to be close when we docked, I'd drop in and see them. He was a good letter writer, and it was always great to hear from him. I got a letter he wrote just before his death, and he told me he was writing lyrics for the new album. The letter followed me all around the world. It went to Bangkok, to the ships I sailed in, then to Melbourne, and finally to Alberts in Sydney. I didn't get the letter until four years after he died. It had postmarks all over it, from all over the world. I can't work out why he's becoming bigger and bigger. None of the family can. As a family, we were all shocked when we found out how much money came in from his songwriting. I just wish he had been alive to enjoy it. I don't like the way people keep saying he died from drugs or heroin. There's no way Bond would have been on heroin, and if he had, I would have known. We were close. Less than two years later, on February 19, 1980, Bon Scott was found dead, alone, and slumped forward in a car in East London. He had drunk himself to death. It was a very lonely death, as it turned out. His friends in Australia, who knew Bon Scott since the 60s, 
could not quite comprehend how, on the edge of international success, he could die alone in a car parked in a lonely London street in the middle of winter with not a friend in sight. What did the cosmos reveal on that fateful night? I believe before Bon Scott was born into this world, his soul had chosen a specific destiny that he had agreed to fulfill. It was written in the stars. When I look at Bon Scott's astrology chart, it shows a man who was ruled by the moon and his emotions. Born on July 9, 1946, in Scotland, he came into this life as an intuitive soul who was on a short but memorable trip this lifetime. His zodiac sign in sensitive cancer found a complicated friend with Moon and Scorpio. In my experience, Scorpio lunar energy can be hard to read, and his friends always mentioned the veil of sadness and loneliness he wore hidden behind his goofy personality. Bon always tried to hide his dark side of the moon. Cancers by nature are not known to be a natural showman. Normally, they prefer to play a supporting role, and being a drummer fit well with Bond's lunar personality. However, the call to be center stage was too intoxicating, and he was drawn into the lion's den when he joined ACDC. Sadly, the road took its toll on his fragile soul, and Bond intuitively knew that his moment in the spotlight would soon dim. It was well known that Bond was a heavy drinker, and his previous band, The Valentines, broke up as a result of a huge drug scandal, with allegations of major use of narcotics by other players of the band. ACDC was fully aware of baggage Bond Scott brought to the table, but Destiny called, and they were ready to write rock and roll history with Bond as their lead singer. Bond Scott died in London after a night of heavy drinking when the temperature could have been as low as three degrees below zero, and the moon was an impulsive Aries. No doubt his sudden cancer was driven by emotional desires, and they were fueled by his lust for sex, drugs, and rock and roll that night. Ultimately, the consequences were immediate and inevitably traumatic for him and everyone he loved. When I look at Bon Scott's birth chart, I believe his underlying sadness is channeled by his moon in Scorpio, square Venus in Leo. This aspect reveals a person who measures their success or their failure in life by their intimate relationships and the amount of love and devotion they feel from their fans, family, and friends at any given moment. Had Bond fallen into a deep depression after his marital breakup, or was he just exhausted from chasing the dream of rock stardom? Either way, when you add drugs and alcohol into the mix, it could easily cause someone to spiral out of control and cause a death by misadventure. What are the mystical facts behind this tragic death? I found there were three key astrological planets that I believe affected Bon Scott that night. It was Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and Virgo squared by Neptune and Sagittarius. The band earlier that evening had been in the studio. Mars square Neptune would have given Bond the creative edge that night, and no doubt it helped inspire him to create with the ACDC one of the most iconic rock albums of all time, Back in Black. This is important as the fourth house is often used in astrology to indicate cause of death. 
And Mars is a planet related to two things which are relevant here. The first is that Mars can relate to a cause of death by poison, which in Bond's case was alcohol. Mars also points to asthma, which Bond suffered from, and it was below freezing on the morning he died. And many people wondered if he suffered breathing problems as a result of his asthma. This inability to breathe properly could have easily contributed to him choking on his own vomit instead of coughing it out. The next astrological planet we find in the fourth house on February 19, 1980 is Jupiter. This planet is often thought of as a lucky charm, but in the fourth house, it can actually indicate a death as a result of excessive vomiting, exactly what happened to Bond after his binge drinking session. Then he has Saturn in the fourth house, which is unfortunately a sign of death in itself. Saturn is one of the heaviest planets, and when it's in the fourth house, it's an omen that death may not be far behind. This, therefore, heralds an increase in deaths, like bonds, which are related to health, vomiting, poison, and breathing problems. This is an important distinction because we saw this planetary configuration over London on February 19, 1980, didn't mean that everyone would be affected, but it did mean that we could see a spike in these type of deaths. Sadly, Bond was one of them. When we look at Bond Scott's numerology chart, there are some important clues when it comes to his death. He was born with the life path number nine, which is known for being a creative and artistic number in numerology. Anyone with a life path number nine also has an amazing ability to express themselves, and this is probably what led Bond to become a peerless singer and songwriter. Bond Scott's death number is three, and this is interesting as this is the number we associate with consequences in numerology. The number three is usually related to superficial experiences that don't last long, like drinking, but which go on to have serious consequences. Sadly, for Bon Scott, the consequence of enjoying a heavy night out was death as a result of death by misadventure. Prior to his death, Bon Scott was recording with his bandmates, Angus Young and Malcolm Young. Angus had the life path number nine, which was the same as Bon Scott. So this explains why they were good friends and shared the same desire to make music and to use their creativity to inspire other people. In the tarot deck, the symbolism of number nine is associated with the hermit in the major arcana. It represents a soul who has incarnated to wrap things up. It represents a person or persons who have been born into this lifetime to learn a few final hard spiritual lessons before moving on to their soul's next evolution. Bon Scott and Angus Young shared that karma by creating one of the biggest rock bands of all time, ACDC. In an interview with BraveWords.com, Angus Young talked about how the death of his old bandmate, Bon Scott, affected him by saying, I think it's just something that is part of you. It's like you lost someone close to you, in your family, or a very close friend. 
you've always got that feeling they're there, but you just, I suppose, miss them in the physical sense. There's always memories that keep coming back to you. And it doesn't matter what the situation is. You could be traveling, you could be relaxing somewhere, or going to play, or being in the studio. There's always something that reminds you. As for Malcolm Young, he had the life path number seven. This is also no surprise people with this number usually easily stand out from the crowd and have a rather unique path in life. The number seven is the sign of the mystic, the fate of the seven. As for is to study, question, apply, and teach the secrets of the soul, which Malcolm did through his music. Malcolm Young tragically died November 18th, 2017, and his death number was Master Number 11. The karmic Master Number 11 symbolizes the principles of spiritual awakening and enlightenment, high energy, and intuition. This is interesting, as this is often the number that we associate with challenges and obstacles that we need to overcome, especially in relationships. In this case, it was his health. As Malcolm Young died following dementia, lung cancer, and a heart-related issue which had plagued him for years. What the astrology and numerology of these three bandmates shows, however, is that sometimes people in the same situations, and even the same geographical space like a recording studio, can go on to have a very different destiny. This all comes down to the planets at the time, and how these influence their unique charts and their life path in numerology. Even with an astrological pileup in the fourth house in London, it was Bon Scott who ultimately succumbed to the planetary influence and died tragically. Even though ACDC continued after his death, thanks to encouragement from his family, we will sadly never know what kind of music Bon Scott would have gone on to create with the band. Following Bon Scott's death, the remaining ACDC band members considered quitting but realized he would have wanted the band to continue. However, I would like to believe that he spiritually helped the band from the other side to pick singer Brian Johnson, a Libra, to help keep ACDC together. In fact, rock journalist, author of three ACDC books and paranormal researcher, Susan Massino, who was very close to ACDC since first meeting them in 1977, thinks the same. She has not stopped seeing Bon Scott, even though he left this world 40 years ago. He appears in her dreams regularly and, says Susan, played a significant part in helping her get started on her book, ACDC FAQ, published in 2015. In an interview for podcast website, See You on the Other Side, Susan said, He was lonely. He was having trouble. He was on the road for 13 years. He was worn out. He was tired. I didn't realize that because he didn't show that. When he walked into the room, oh my God. Big smile, making a joke, trying to make you laugh, tripping over something. Whatever it took to make people laugh. He was larger than life. His soul was bigger than the room. Bon has been gone for so many years, but everyone still talks about him. He is always there. 
they do feel him when on tour or recording. Messino says, Brian Johnson wrote all the lyrics to Back in Black when the band went to the Bahamas to record the album. And indeed, he is credited with doing so on the LP. The titles were set. The music was set. The songs were ready. It was left to Brian to write the lyrics, and he was terrified. Messino recounts that there were thunderstorms in the Bahamas. One night, she says, Johnson sat up from a dead sleep, grabbed some paper and a pen, and started writing lyrics until they stopped coming. Brian says it was definitely Bon who was there making sure things were taken care of, says Messino. Messino then went on to recall how Bon appeared to her one night when she was having a panic attack at 3 a.m. before beginning her book. When asked who has a presence that might be unearthly, Messino replies, Oh God, that would be Bon Scott. He was an angel who was only here for a certain time and now he's gone. And he's talked about every day. When he walked into the room, you knew he was there. As ACDC's manager, Michael Browning said, Bond took on the role of rock and roll singer like a character actor. He was the missing link. He made them real. Maybe in the end, he let that character overtake him. Despite all the mystery surrounding his death, we can say for sure Bond Scott was the epitome of the larger-than-life character. A prodigious drinker, who dabbled in drugs, who loved the rock and roll life, was incredibly hardworking, equally wild, carefree, and rebellious, had a cheeky nature, loved his mum and family, loved performing, being part of a band, was a talented street poet, lyricist, could play the drums and bagpipes and the recorder, and had an amazing rock singer's voice, liked to party hard, wine, women, and song, and make people laugh. We know too that, near the time of his death, he was tired, lonely, was a sensitive soul, and was looking for something else. That maybe all angels do. He knew his time was going to be short, but to meet his end passed out and wrapped around a gear stick, wearing just a t-shirt with one blanket for warmth in a pokey car on a cold winter's night, in the unglamorous surrounds of a London estate is still a sad and tragic exit. But he is still talked about 40 years on and still touches so many people all this time later. Bon Scott, we think, is probably content with that. When all is said and done, what really matters is Bon Scott's voice lives on. In the end, Angus Young in an interview with Uncut sums up everyone's feelings about Bon Scott best. We all miss him terribly. It's rare that you come across someone in your life with such a big character. He'll always be with you. <laughs> <laughs> 